stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And now if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 5. Verse 21, you have heard it said, it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are going, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You may be seated. Thank you, Craig and Nicole. And uh, at our marriage conference this weekend, they gave an award for the couple married uh, the least amount of time. So they're celebrating three months and part of their gift was uh, Mr. Uh, we can clap for that, of course. And uh, part of their gift were the uh, Mr. and Mrs. Aprons, which I thought would be nice if they read. And the Mr. and Mrs. Aprons, albeit maybe a bit confusing for those coming on the live stream for the first time <laughs> and seeing that, uh, what kind of church is this? Uh, but we are thankful <laughs> for you. So if you remember, we're in the middle of the Decalogue 
10 words, the 10 commandments. And I think you, you know, pluck a, pluck a person off the street and say, you know, have you heard of the 10 commandments? Say, I've seen them etched in buildings in Washington, D.C. or on the courthouses. And you open up to Exodus 20 and have them to take a glance. I think this is what they'd say. Uh, you shall have no other gods before me. I'm good there. I don't worship Allah or Buddha. And I'm not a Hindu. Check. You shall not make for yourself carved images. Again, I don't have any wooden figurines in my house that I worship. Good to go there. Commandment three, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You say, well, I you know, hit my finger with a hammer occasionally, and that comes out of my mouth. But I have a pretty clean mouth, especially if I go to a ball game or something. I hear the person to my left or right. I'm good. Check. Remember the Sabbath day. Well, yeah, I take Saturdays off, and we take family vacations. I'm good there. And honor your father and mother while I'm no longer a child. So I'm feeling pretty good about this. I uh, obey the commandments perfectly. But what we've been trying to do is to argue differently, to say that these are not mere kind of laws that God just arbitrarily drops on the people, but what they are, as all good lawmaking is, our laws are a way of shaping the people of God so that we might better reflect who God is. And if you remember what we said, is really the first commandment is a heading on all the commandments. If you break commandments 2 through 10, you've already broken commandment 1. So later we'll see to steal something. What, what's happened in that moment is that I had that material possession was more important to me than obeying God. You see, so uh, stealing is in fact a violation of more than one commandment. Many of the commandments work that way. So that's a heading. Secondly, remember, say, idols are not just little figures where our mind goes, but idols are any place or idea where we find security. It's where our allegiance is. It is the so-called passions of the flesh. So things like my job and, uh, you know, um, uh, even other people can fall into the category of idol. I find myself, I'm living for human things rather than for God. And if you put it in that lens, say, I'm not doing so well. Taking the name of the Lord your God in vain is not just about swearing, but it's about speaking accurately of God. Remember what we said, everybody's a theologian. You just have good ones and bad ones. It also judges our hypocrisy. So we come to church, the world knows we proclaim to follow this God, and then we go out into the world and do whatever we want. Say so that really is a violation of the third commandment, the Sabbath day. Far from a little time to rest in a secular fashion with your loved ones. It's much more than that. It's about whether or not I'm regulating my life in such a way to show that I trust in the completed work of God and that it's not up to me to press and make my own meaning, but rather it is my identity in Jesus. Am I carving that time out? It's not just practical advice. It's about God. And last week, you remember honoring your father and your mother. We do that throughout all of life. It's about our culture as a church to say we instruct obedience when children are young all the way up to taking care of our aging parents when it's costly if you say if that's really what's going on in the commandments you say i far from saying check 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 i'm feeling i've fallen short 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 that i've fallen short of the standards of god that i'm much more inclined to go my own way than conform to his law which is shaping his people to betray his glory to the onlooking world. So, you know, with that kind of lead up, that's what we've been trying to do. Now you glance down at verse 13. You say, surely, surely we're not going to find out today that we're guilty of murder. 
But when we read that second reading, you say that's exactly where Jesus is going to go. Why? Because we have to understand what is behind this commandment and why God would instruct this to his people and how he's shaping us. And I know in a further parenthetical note, some of you are thinking, I can't believe that this, this preacher has gone to such a grinding halt. We, we got off to such a great start in Exodus and now it's just four words. You shall not murder. But I hope, you say, these are very important words and, and well worth our attention today. So Exodus 20 and verse 13, you shall not murder. Why is this important for God's people? Why does it make us different? So first, a bold heading in your notes. This command is about the sanctity of human life. This is a Judeo-Christian distinctive. You go to the first page of the Bible, and what you'll find in that created order, there's this wonderful phrase that used that every person is made in the image of God. It's a very special phrase, not just about capacities, but really about our ability to know our creator and then represent him in the world say, continuing on in that creation narrative, what we find is that humans and humans alone are soulish. That those uh, in the animal kingdom, we, God's people, are thankful for animals. We thank God for his created order and they're marvelous to look at, but they don't have souls. God breathes into human beings that were soulish. Every person, without exception, is made in the image of God. Think of your week ahead. You're gonna pull out your calendar. You got a lot of appointments on there, don't you? And you've got neighbors that you're going to interact with. You're going to go to the supermarket. You're going to see irritating people and your friends and all kinds of people. Say every single one of them is made in the image of God. Say, I like the way Lewis puts it at the end of that great sermon, The Weight of Glory. Remember, say, we toss around that term, you know, a mere, a mere man. He said, you've never met a mere man. What he means is that every person is sacred without exception. Think how important that truth is for where we find ourselves with so-called identity politics, right? What is identity politics? Well, there's this kind of person and this kind of person and they're pitted against each other and this group is oppressing this group and they've got to weigh all this out and we don't really say, well, cuts in the Judeo-Christian view. Say every person is made with a kind of dignity in the image of God and this is a distinctive and so out of that flows that we don't murder, that humans are not sovereign over other humans, that I've not authored any of your lives, uh, but God has been the author of life, that we are consistently for life. Now, as I say that, some of you know, this is a major tension in our culture. This is a real fault line, so I'll read a couple of things. Uh, firstly, this is S.J. Gould, famous paleontologist, many years at Harvard, uh, Gould uh, was interviewing Life magazine, so this comes across, yeah, he's an eminent scientist, but it came across at the popular level. Listen to what Gould says. We are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. Because comets struck the earth and wiped out dinosaurs, thereby giving mammals a chance not otherwise available, parenthetically, so thank your lucky stars in a literal sense. He's saying it's by chance, isn't he? Because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age, because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a, quote, higher answer, but none exists. We cannot read the meaning of life passively into the facts of nature. 
We must construct these answers ourselves from our own wisdom and ethical sense. There is no other way. Say Gould captures the secular mindset perfectly. We're here by chance. There's no real meaning out there. We're up to ourselves to construct our own meaning, and that's the best we can do. There are no higher answers. All there is is stuff, right? You can't construct any kind of real meaning out of stuff. You must craft it yourselves. Or how about very similarly? This is Francis Crick, you know, pioneer with DNA. You, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells, nerve cells and their associated molecules. Crick again, absolutely consistent. You're here by chance. The thoughts that you have right now are because of your chemistry. Uh, there is no meaning in life. It is just brute facts. So you see uh, these conceptions of what it means to be human really are quite different. On this hand, you've got the clear Judeo-Christian teaching. Every person, no matter what, is sacred. That God knit them by his own hand in their mother's womb. That you're not sovereign over any other person, but every person is sacred. Over here, Gould, Crick, secular materialism. You're here by chance. We can have meaning only insofar as you invent it. It's a very logical position. When you get rid of God, this is actually quite consistent. Now, if I can press this a bit further into some issues, and today, say I'm going to hit on some things that I hope you say these are not, I'm not trying to stir the pot, but my job is never to make anyone comfortable, but rather to tie a bowstring between what God has said and the culture in which all of us find ourselves. So let's take, for example, you've come into membership at our church or are thinking about it, and you might say, well, there's an affirmation on being pro-life. Why is this church getting into politics? I hope you see with the sixth commandment and the reason behind the commandment that that is not a political issue. It is a theological one. It's whether or not we take God at his word and embrace this major teaching in the Bible that he is the author of life, that life is a gift, and that those who are under the authority of God are always for life. That's why we're for life. How about the other end of the spectrum? Euthanasia. Say, if you're over here with Gould and Crick, and you've got an 85-year-old mom, your mom, and she's suffering miserably in the hospital, it makes all the sense in the world, in your worldview, to be for euthanasia. Why? Because we're a vast assembly of molecules. Over here, what's the Christian view say? God's the author of life. There's meaning in suffering. God knows what he's doing. And no matter how miserable this is, we trust that God will consummate all things in Christ and that I'm to be faithful. These are two very different views. And what happens is we can get very mad. Christians get very mad at this view, whereas what I would say is we shouldn't be mad at this group. We should just understand where they're coming from and bear witness to the better way. Can I, can I hit on a few more? And say, why do we take the positions we do? This is not politics. It is theology. Suicide. All of us have been touched by this in a negative and sad way. Nothing more sad than being at a funeral for a suicide victim. I say some of us might be tempted to say, well, this is a great liberation for that person. I would argue, say, a Christian should never be for suicide. 
to me, it helps to remember what this was called in the medieval church, right? That they called suicide self-murder. Say, I know that there's issues of chemical dependence and, and drugs and all that, and I don't want to weigh into that today. What I'm trying to say is as Christians, we point to hope and to life. We want to be consistent on those. Say, there's for life. You can be right with Jesus, and your life can be used and has a purpose. We're never for self-murder. How about a few more here? You know, violence. I've been struck by this. You know, we are quite smug and have our good educations, and we are, you know, thinking, well, we're making great progress on this front. I mean, violence is so barbaric. I mean, people at each other's throats, killing each other. We've moved long past this. So I couldn't help earlier this week. I go because of our association of churches, and it seems like a lot of the stuff that I do with other pastors is headquartered in Chicago, and every time I go to three, four times a year to Chicago, I look at those great buildings and all the wealth, and I'm sitting around there with the other you know, doctors of the church, and look at us, we're great progressives. And you look out across that skyline, it's frightening how many homicides there are in that city. This past year, I was to go to Zambia. It didn't work out because of the Omicron variant, but people would say, I can't believe you're going to Zambia. I mean, Zambia must be, must be very dangerous. Are you sure you want to go to Zambia? I said, look, if you really want to worry about me, you should worry about my three or four trips to Chicago because there are more homicides in Cook County than there are in the entire country of Zambia. So we are quite polished, and we're educating a lot of people, and we're moving down the line with all of our great science, and yet we're more violent than we've been in three decades because we're at each other's throats and we've lost sight of this great truth of the sanctity of human life. And I go a little bit further on violence. How about the rise of both left-wing and far-right-wing violence? Remember in mid-2020 how shocked I was actually that churches I would say are kind of in our stream are encouraging going out and smashing up businesses and intimidating minority business owners I say we don't do that Christians don't do that we don't result to violence when we don't get our way same January 6th you know I'm not saying it's what you know January 6th it didn't get the outcome that we wanted so we respond with violence and intimidation as if we control other. say no we, we don't do that because we're consistently pro-life we're pro-life. We don't control other pe people. Other people are sacred. Now, here is my attempt now. There's a saying that I heard a few weeks ago. You can think about this this week. It's a lot to unpack, actually, in this little sentence. Say, are we as a church beyond explaining the church to the culture or the church to the world? What we really ought to do is spend more time explaining the world to the church. And so that is my attempt now to do this. I want you to think now about these two views, some of the big issues that I've, that I've brought up, and let's go two further that are, on the news, that are on the news every day. The treatment of the Uyghurs, who are Muslims, the treatment of the Uyghurs in Northwest China, and the Russians moving in on the sovereign nation of Ukraine. Here's what's happening in secular materialism. See if you can see this tension. Abortion is choice. Euthanasia is choice. Suicide is choice. Mistreating the Uyghurs. Well, let's pause. We, we don't like that. Well, isn't it choice? Well, R R Putin coming into Ukraine. Choice. All just a vast assembly of molecules. 
why would my meaning or purpose or ethics have any uh, ability to trump Vladimir Putin's? What I'm trying to say is that secular materialism, for those who are operating in the world, it does not allow them to live in the world consistently. I'm not saying that every secular person is, what I'm saying is that the, if, if choice is the thing, if random assembly of cells is the thing, then you've gotta be consistent, and that consistency is everybody constructs their own meaning, and I've got no ability to call somebody else out of bounds. I can't boycott the Olympics, uh, so to speak. I've got no moral footing to do that, it's all just random. So the secular worldview, you're forced into some inconsistencies with what you want to say about the world. Let's come back over here to God's design. Every person's made in the image of God. You're not sovereign over any other person. I can be pro-life, matters of abortion, euthanasia, suicide, mistreatment of a particular group of people, even in Northwest China, mistreatment of Ukrainians. You see that? That we can be consistently pro-life because our view of the world the image of God gives us the intellectual backing to declare what we want to say about the world. It's absolutely consistent. This is why I think some, you know, would say that, talk about the great explanatory power of our faith. That when you come and operate under God's view, that as you live in the world, you're then able to be consistent in your positions. You say, if you want to take the random view, then you're going to have some inconsistencies, and I think that we should be those who are a little bit, uh, you know, again, being more confident in the fact that God has been the author of all things that we can rest under him. So the command, what is behind this command, you shall not murder, is the major teaching in scripture that God is the author of life and that his people are able to be absolutely consistent across the board on being for life on these issues. Now, I've dropped a lot of controversial matters. If you want to talk about this this week, you can email me at dabul at providencechurch. <laughs> so, this command is about the sanctity of life. We're consistently for life. Objection now, I think, as we move through this, you say, well, your, your minds are ahead of mine. I've got an objection. What about self-defense? Um, you know, what about those of us who serve in the military? And I say, I think there, we can still be consistently pro-life. Uh, so, for example, the Bible itself talks about accidental deaths or, you know, what we have in our legal system, involuntary manslaughter, things like this. The Bible makes provision for and also self-defense. So we are not, some would say, are we to be pacifists? Some Christian traditions are completely pacifist. I respect the view. I think it's very difficult to maintain a pacifistic view of the world. And here's why. Because difficult choices in the Christian life are never, never between an obviously Christian choice and an obviously non-Christian choice. Those are very easy things. Those are very easy choices. What happens in Christian moral reasoning is there are certain things in life where you find two competing clear biblical goods. So let's take on this hand, Jesus very clearly says, love your enemy and turn the other cheek. Violence is a last resort. Very clear. Also, though, he'll say, loving your neighbor is very important. So here you come, you happen to be out for a jog, you're over at Schwartz Park, and you see a larger kid beating up on a smaller kid. You're the only one there. Say, well, I, you know, I, I'm a pacifist. I gotta just keep running. Say, I don't think that's the most Christian thing to do. What you would do probably is in the meantime, you, you'd, you'd intervene to protect the smaller child, not in an effort to do violence, but why? In an effort to preserve and encourage life. 
So passivism in matters of self-defense does not work, and the Bible makes provisions for this. A self-defense, if you're defending your family from somebody who breaks in and it results in a killing, and we use, I don't want to get into a word debate, but you say some would distinguish, and uh, and the way I've done it is murder. Say I'm mad at somebody and I want their stuff, and I've just out of anger, I've murdered them, versus killing as a result of self-defense or in an aim to love my neighbor— There are provisions for that, which spills over into matters of foreign policy. How about something like, and I have to be careful here, I see at least half a dozen medical doctors. I know that if I, I don't know this arena well as an early church historian, so maybe you could talk to one of them if I get something wrong, but I'll make an attempt here. In ectopic pregnancy, a tubal pregnancy, where the way that that child was conceived and the way that it's developed threatens the life of the mother. They say, if you're a Christian physician, what do you do? You say, you know, if you take out that section of tube, the child will die. Are you able to do anything about that? And we would say, absolutely you can. Because that procedure, the aim of that act is not to murder. It's not, the aim of the act is not to kill the child. The aim of the act is to what? preserve the life of the mother. So there are certain things and instances that in our world, our fallen world, will put the Christian in that kind of dilemma, and you say, well, do we have to be inconsistent? We are not inconsistent. We are always for life. But there are some things that when I am for life will require me to intervene, and in the same way, no one is going to, you know, say that the Ukrainians who are defending their families and their homeland to protect themselves are behaving unchristianly. Why? Their aim is not to kill Russians. Their aim is to preserve life, preserve life. So we can distinguish between, as I call it in the notes, murder and killing, and do so, uh, do so with consistency. So the moves we've made, this commandment, the sixth, is really about the sanctity of human life. Christians are not as much in a bind as we might think we are when we distinguish that certain acts uh, might require what is called killing uh, without committing murder insofar as that aim of those acts is to preserve life. Thirdly, and I think probably of interest to all of you, is uh, what, does this really matter for any of us? I mean, are we going to commit murder anytime soon? Uh, has any of us ever even witnessed a murder? What does this have to do with me? Is it relevant? Well, without preaching a second sermon, I would like you to glance over at that second reading. It's a hard reading in many ways. It's Jesus in the most famous sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So what's happening there? Jesus is making a direct connection between the Jewish leaders of his day, saying, I'm going right back to Exodus 20 and verse 13. You've heard it said, it's wrong to do murder. But then this, I say to you that everyone who is angry, angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. These are pretty scary and hard-hitting lines, aren't they? That Jesus, in chapter 5 and verse 17, he says, I've not come to abolish the law, right? Some of us get that wrong, and just say, did Jesus come and just say, all that stuff is out there? No, what he says, I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it, it points forward to me. And those of you, you 
Pharisees and religious leaders, you think you're, you're pretty good guys because you've not murdered anybody. You've not murdered anybody. But Jesus rightfully does something so very bold, and if we're honest, so very true, is that he says that God sees everything, even matters of the heart. That he goes even so far as to say that the judgments of our heart must also live up to the perfect standard of God. See, quite frankly, friends, this, to me, is why a lot of people really don't like the Bible. Because it's very easy to say, okay, there's ethical teachings on my outside conduct and the, few, you know, the, 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 the amount of time that I, anything can really go wrong in that arena. I'm going to do just fine. And the outward act is... But when Jesus comes in and says, actually, I want to get to the, the crookedness of your heart, that all of us start to squirm. Because if you read what... Could it be what, what he's saying is the meaning behind that law is that you have a high regard for human life and you go around with contempt for other people and using bad words for them, that you're harboring the same kind of feelings inside you that ultimately, if God were to hand us over to ourselves, would result in murder. So what Luther, the reformer, says, right, hatred is murder in the heart. All Jesus is doing, say, it's not just about the outside act of murder, but what is the disposition of your heart that gives way to that kind of thing? You know, Francis Schaeffer, great apologist, he would have this exercise that he would do with non-believers, and he'd say this. He'd say, and it's good for Christians too, he'd say, what, what would happen if everything that you thought the last seven days. I mean, every thought that you had about another person, about your life, about where, wherever your mind went, say everything you thought was going to be posted on social media for the world to see. Now, I'd love everybody to read that because all my thoughts are so godly. No. You say, I wouldn't want anybody to read that. And if that's your answer, think really. You could do it and say, what if my whole life this last week was a movie? I mean, it was a movie for everybody to see the last seven days. Most of us say, I don't want people to see that movie. Say, you're, I think, in universal company. Why? Because what's happening there? Say, I'm aware of a moral standard. God's given it. He's, I'm aware of the moral standard. I can't even live up to what I think that moral standard is. And if there's a God, that's how he knows me. And I can't fake it. I can't fake the not murdering any of you or my colleagues or my neighbors. Say, I, I, you know, that maybe I, I won't do, but I can't fake the anger in my heart and the contempt that I can have for my fellow man. That's what this is about. It's about the heart. We're aware of perfect standards and we stand then exposed in this sin too. I think to go put it positively, can we put the sixth commandment positively? It's about loving others. It's really about are our, our my people, God would say, are my people those who really have a disposition to love and serve others, to treat them with kindness, even those with whom we have serious disagreements, and I do have serious disagreements with other people as you do. Do I default to my natural self with terms of abuse, with hatred in my heart, with stress in my shoulders, or do I say, wait a second, I'm under the authority of God, that he's the author of all life, that all of us are his children, that I can offload that hatred and that embitteredness and all the things that I've done in my, I can offload that onto the Lord and rest in him and bear witness that this command is about loving others. Do we love our, other, our neighbors? Friends, I've talked about some 
some serious things here the last couple weeks, and I realize that when I bring up a category like abortion in a room of this many people, you're thinking, I, I've really blown it on this one too. There's people I hate, both in my midst and in Washington, a neighbor that I really would wish didn't exist, harbored hatred against groups of people. I maybe, maybe encouraged your girlfriend 30 years to go to get an abortion. Maybe you've had thoughts about an aging parent that's difficult for you. I wish I could just euthanize them. You say, if that's you today, and you just feel, say, here's a commandment, you shall not murder, and it's quite scary what Jesus says, that I, in, in the mind of a perfect God, I've, I've crossed the line here. You say, what do I do? Is there a way forward? You say, there is a way forward. <laughs> There's a wonderful way forward, and that is the provision that God has provided in his son, Jesus, who went to the cross for us. Say, yeah, I've not been consistently pro-life. I see God is the authority over life, and I've, I've perpetrated acts of violence, and I've certainly harbored hatreds against people, and I stand condemned. What can I do? God's put forth Jesus. And all that guilt, you say, I need to be right with God, and he's given me his son. I'd encourage you today, as you think about this, you play it out, read the words of Jesus and this commandment to say, you know, Lord, I really do. I want to surrender to you, that I need your help. I need to be absolved of this terrible, things I did college many, many years ago that have disappointed you and that I knew were wrong. But today's a new day. You can say yes to Jesus. His blood will cover you. You can live for him and be reconciled to God. And church family for us, to remember again, we're consistently pro-life. So ought to be no surprises in that. Why? Not because of politics, but because of God making each person in his image that we are for life. Violence is a last result. That's who we are. We promote life and we love one another. Not in our flesh. It's an impossibility. To love the unlovable is absolutely impossible. That's why we must rely on the Spirit of God and be known uh, to the onlooking community as those who, of course, we love one another, but we also love them. You know, here in a few minutes, I'm, I'll, I'll pray, but most of the time we hear the gospel preached, we sit under it, we sit under God's word, and he's given us words, but in other instances, he's given us a visual, and he's given us the visual of what we call the Lord's Supper, an ordinance. You say, what that is, it's a visible uh, renewing of the people in the truth that the the bread represents the body and the blood represents the blood of Jesus and as the church family takes it together it's a visible tangible reminder of the truths that we just thought about that God sent forth Jesus to wash us our sins to set us aright and to live for him so I'm going to pray for this sermon and then we'll go into our time of the Lord's Supper gracious father help us to comprehend this here today. And maybe, Lord, we'd be inclined with much of the culture to look at Exodus 20 and verse 13 and say, well, I've never murdered anybody. I'm, I'm a, a good person. Help us to read Jesus's commentary on this verse to see what he's really saying. Well, actually, yeah, it's easy to obey the letter of the law, but what about the hatreds that I'm harboring in my heart? That I've committed murder on the inside that I'm the first to slur someone or call them a fool or worse, and what kind of representation is that among my children and my colleagues? And so, Lord, I would pray as we 
think more deeply about why Jesus came, that we would affirm that, that line in Romans 3.20. It's that in the giving of the law, we're made aware of our knowledge of sin. <laughs> if it wasn't the case, why would we need a Savior? So Lord, help us positively to be a community that loves, that we want to be those who are consistent on the side of life, to love our neighbors, to protect our neighbors, because that is anchored in who you are and how you've made us. And Lord, as we look at the fracturing of our republic, help us to realize that we do have a wonderful truth in this, that we would be differently because of it. So commit this time to you, our thoughts to you in Christ's name. Amen.